I got some work to do here. Just a minute now. I don't, 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 don't turn that dial away, Dad. You've got something here. Just a minute. Let's see, see if you can hear this now. I, I, I've got a little, uh, little uh, practice to do here. Just a minute. I'm practicing on a, on a tuned steel drum, which uh, one of the musicians here lent me. And I'm down in Barbados where the steel drum has attained such a beautiful high degree of sophisticated musical refinement that the instrument, when it's played properly by uh, musicians who have spent all their lives playing tuned steel drums, it's an incredible sound. Now, I'm not, I'm not uh, really a Latin American music hippie <laughs> type. I, you know, I, I could take it or leave it alone. But everything seems to work out just right when you're in a country. You know, it's, it's, it's a little eerie to find that, uh, that when you go from one country to the next, that uh, the music of that country so fits that country that it just seems so logical that you, can't just, you, you really can't see uh, music developing in any other direction. In fact, I remember one time when I, if there's anything I don't like to hear generally, it's the sound of uh, a little German um pa pa band, you know, the kind of um pa pa um pa pa um pa 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 um pa pa. Well, I spent one night, one of the first times I was ever in Germany, I spent one night in Munich, and from that time on, the the uh, German band uh, sounds absolutely right for Germany. And then one time I was up in the Highlands, and I, I'll never forget that time, and I happened to be in... in uh, uh, in a town well north of Edinburgh, and it was on a Sunday, and the regiment was out uh, giving a little exhibition, and you could hear the sound of those skirling bagpipes echoing from the hills. And uh, again, that's, a, that's an instrument that has often reminded me of a dentist drill gone ape. But uh, the sound of that, that skirling bagpipe forever is absolutely right for Scotland. And the tuned steel drum, which you hear down here in the islands, uh, particularly in the in the south, the, the far southern islands of the uh, great Caribbean island chains, the uh, the steel drum just sounds so right down here that you you can't see how they could ever have had any music other than that. But you know the curious thing about it that uh, talking to real Biwi, real Bajans down here, well, they'll tell you that the uh, steel drum band music is not really the intrinsic music of this part of the world that uh, it's a kind of music that developed uh, a few years back and became very popular and uh, sort of took on a, 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 a sort of superficial reality and today is is very much part of the life but it is not the genuine uh, music of this 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 area here's what a steel drum sounds like now i'm not, I'm not going to play any records for you here or anything like that I have a steel drum right here. It's a little one. This is, a, I guess, what would be the equivalent of a soprano steel drum. And uh, you've probably seen them or heard them, at least heard of them. And uh, they're made from the end of a steel drum, uh, a regular oil container. And they're, they're, uh, they're not even polished. They're usually painted, uh, and uh, they're, they're tuned with a blowtorch, I understand, and hammered into shape. And all around the outside of it are different areas that are marked with uh, with the uh, little decoration so I guess the player can tell what he's looking at 
all around the outside are the areas that are, are tuned to different to different uh, different tones, different uh, different chords. And here here in the center there are several others. And and I'll I'll hit each area as you can hear the different sounds it makes. Now I'll, I'll hit it lightly so that it won't overload the microphone. It's, uh, it's, it's an easy, natural way of life. 
and uh, the island itself is is around 1900. To, I think it's you, you hear different uh, different versions of just how far it is, but uh, depending on whether you f- uh, fly one way or fly another, the island is between 1900 and 2000 miles from New York City, almost directly due southeast. Uh, if you drew a line almost uh, southeast of New York, straight on down, you'd be right at Barbados. It's, it's one big town. It's Bridgetown. There's 250,000 people on the island. And it's one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. It's, uh, it's really, it's really a, uh, a genuine tropical paradise. You know, uh, one of the people that, uh, that, that they talk a lot about down here and uh, he, he, uh, his influence, of course, is, it's not that he has an influence, but uh, his name very important in these islands, down, down this far, is Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, he, uh, his Treasure Island and a few other things he wrote are centered around the Leeward Island groups. And one of the very first things that I remember uh, as a kid uh, being impressed with something I read was uh, out of Treasure Island. In fact, uh, if, I, if my memory is correct, and it usually is pretty accurate, uh, I didn't even read uh, this uh, particular passage. It was read to me. Uh, I uh, recall that once in a while when I was a little kid, my mother used to, used to have a habit of reading to us. And uh, we before we'd go to bed, she would read uh, something that, uh, she thought we would like. Uh, she'd read maybe 15, 20 minutes before we finally got too tired and corked off. But I had gotten as a gift from one of my aunts, I believe it was Aunt Gwen, and uh, she gave me a book which was far too uh, heavy going for me to read. I think I was around five years old or four or something like that. And uh, she gave me this beautiful illustrated copy of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. And the the thing that really got me, I remember this particular passage, was uh, the uh, the description of uh, Treasure Island and the boat, uh, the 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 beautiful boat that they had, uh, as it was lying at harbor, lying in in a cove under the moonlight, and Jim was uh, swimming to the side of the boat. I don't even remember the story exactly, but I remember Jim was swimming through this this sparkling water, and the moon was hanging above, and it was trickling down through the rigging of the ship as it was creaking at anchor. And he climbed up the side of the boat, and I remember that image so vividly that I I would have to say that that it, it was probably the strongest literary memory that I had in my early days. And, uh, in fact, it, it even remains today one of the strongest images. And, and from that time on, I think we all naturally all fall in love with islands. We, we love the whole idea of an island. And uh, from that time on, this, this whole idea of uh, Treasure Island and the Leeward Islands, there's a town about uh, six or seven miles from uh, right where I'm sitting right now. I'm sitting in a, in a, in a place uh, called... Uh, Shelter Beach, Settlers Beach, I'm sorry, it's called Settlers Beach Inn, and uh, it's really not an inn, it's a, it's a series of little chalets right on the shore 
of the Caribbean. And if you listen in the background, you can probably hear the sound of the waves as they come lapping up on the shore about, oh, 100 or maybe 150 feet from me. You can probably hear the sound of birds and frogs and one thing and another here because the, the air is alive with, uh, with birds and animals down here in these islands. And smells, the smells are out of this world. I mean, you, you, you just, you wake up to the smell of frangipani. You wake up to the smell of, of uh, these, these great blossoms that grow on the trees down here. But uh, getting back to Robert Louis Stevenson and the color of this, this part of the world, even the names are, are exciting. Uh, there's a town that's just about, oh, maybe four or five miles up the coast here from us. You can just walk it if you want. It's a good walk, but it's about five miles, six miles. A town that's laying right on the coast called Spice Town. Just, just a name, Spice Town, and it, it, it looks exactly the way the name sounds. It's a, it's a beautiful little town of, of whitewashed uh, buildings made out of stone and coral with uh, yellow and orange and dark green roofs little narrow streets and, and these people walking along through the streets with their bundles on their heads and you can smell the sea and along the along the shore all the the wooden boats are pulled up and you can see where they're working on boats and building them and the fishing boats are going out and, and this afternoon I uh, went down to Spice Town or up I guess it would be I went up to Spice Town and I was uh, just uh, walking around in the streets and I went into a went into a uh, drugstore there. They don't call them drugstores here. They're all called uh, chemists in the old English fashion. And I went to this chemist shop, and uh, it, was, it was a typical little drug. Nothing like the drugstores you find up in the States, but uh, a little store and very pleasant. The, the doors were open, and the breeze was blowing in, and a couple of Bewees were, uh, natives, uh, that is, were, were, uh, were buying something, and and uh, it was just a, a quiet, pleasant, easy, languid air. And I walked in and I said to the guy behind the counter, I, I wanted to buy some pipe tobacco. And I mentioned what I wanted. And he said, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir. He said, oh, right over here, sir. And uh, we haggled, not haggled, really. We discussed pipe tobacco for about 10 minutes. And he, he, was, a, he was an aficionado. And I, I gave him my, uh, the, the, uh, I gave him the money and, and uh, walked back out into the street. I paid him in a with a bee-wee dollar, and he gave me some change. And I walked out into the street, and somebody waved to me going by in a truck. Everybody waves here on the street, by the way. Uh, as you drive along, uh, uh, you're just barreling along, or if you walk along, uh, most people will, will wave to you. And, and in fact, it's just a, a general uh, national uh, habit, I guess. And they'll wave, and they'll smile, and they'll call each other out the window. Even if they don't know each other, and it's just a, it's just a genuinely pleasant feeling. Uh, this afternoon, to get to a little reporting, I had a chance to uh, meet uh, some of the people from the local radio station. Uh, they, they, apparently, the word got out that I was down here, and and uh, there's a very closely knit underground of radio people, and and. Uh, all of a sudden, I got a telephone call here. Somebody wanted to see me, and I went over and saw him. And I and I had a, I had a couple of drinks and sat around and chewed the fat with some of the local radio guys. And uh, by the way, speaking of radio, uh, <laughs> and the underground network, this is good old friendly WOR, in the heart of New York City, big old fun town. 
I suppose we could be called Spice Town if you look at spices in another way. And uh, this is me broadcasting from Barbados tonight. <laughs> it's me back again. Oh, boy, I'll tell you, this climate down here makes you just about on the verge. Uh, it, it, it's, it's getting out of hand every place you go. You know, this afternoon, I, uh, I was with a group of people, all of whom were total strangers to me. And uh, we, were, we were standing there holding uh, rum punches. And by the way, if you can't tolerate a rum punch, you better be careful about coming down here to the Barbados area. This, this rum punch is about as ubiquitous as, as Diet Yuhu is in New York. Uh, I'm standing there uh, holding the rum punch when um, all of a sudden a guy comes up out of the crowd, tall, thin, bearded guy with gaunt eyes. I might have known when I looked at him what I was about to hear. And um, he stood before me for a second, and then somebody leaped out of the crowd and said, uh, this is uh, Charlie Apparat from the U.S. Embassy. I want you to meet him, Gene. And I said, uh, gee, how are you? And he stuck his mitt out, and he said, Excelsior, you fathead. <laughs> and he said, I've been a listener since the Wanamaker days. And instantly there was a, there was a rapport there, and, and all the, uh, the West Indians around us sort of stood around with their mouths hanging open because they didn't know what we were talking about. And for 20 minutes we sat and had... Uh, long and, uh, and involved and convoluted backslappings, yelling and hollerings about the, the Needix uh, incident, the, uh, the incident of the Wanamaker store, the incident of the kite flying, Excelsior, you fathead, I libertine, and the whole scene. And then uh, we went off down the street, and I got a chance to, through him, he was from the U.S. Information Service. Isn't it great to know that a listener is one of the, one of the big shots in the USIS down here? That's a, that's a true example of subversion at work. But uh, we uh, went down the street to the radio station. And uh, I just can't help it. I, I uh, had to go see the radio station. It's a great, great, uh, nice set of studios. And uh, I spent uh, an afternoon chewing the fat with newscasters and news writers and guys that did disc jockey shows and one thing or another. And that, uh, uh, I don't know, it, it, uh, it, it was like a visiting plumber. And so uh, we recorded an interview, and uh, that should be on the air here, oh, maybe uh, tomorrow or the next day. But unfortunately, by that time, we'll have left this island. Uh, in a few hours, I will be uh, taking a plane. Uh, we'll be flying on one of the uh, island aircraft. There's a, there's, a, there's a little airlines down here called Liat, Lured Island Air Transport. Little little airline that flies nothing but uh, to the to the Leeward Islands. They they hop from island to island. They take you down to Granadas, and they'll take you from Granadas down to Guadalupe and up to Barbados. And these are the Leeward Islands. The whole group of them down here. And uh, I am what I suppose is called in uh, the language of the tourist magazines. I'm island hopping. But uh, these these islands that we're hopping to are not just any islands. These are, these are the islands of the of the Leeward Island group, and they're very special. We're going to fly, uh, in fact, uh, I'll be seeing that tomorrow. We're going to fly over one of the most exotic of all the island groups in this area, the Grenadine Islands. And uh, obviously this is the, the place where grenadine originates, which is used in many drinks. But up until just very recently, uh, 
these islands were accessible only by uh, yacht and uh, perhaps the uh, very rare or occasional ship that would put into them. But they were almost inaccessible. And I understand some of the most beautiful islands in the world and very, very wild and almost totally untouched. And uh, they're putting in uh, a few little airstrips uh, on the Grenadine Islands, and, and very shortly, I, uh, I guess, people will be able to visit them. But we're going to fly over them, and I'm going to get some information on them. But this part of the world down here is, is, uh, has an exotic flavor that is very different from any place I've ever... And by the way, is quite different from what you generally think of as uh, uh, Latin America, the, the further on down you get into these islands. Because you see islanders live a very insulated life. Uh, their, their life is very much removed from the life of uh, people even just a hundred miles or so away from them. That's one of the first things you learn down in this area, that, uh, that when you leave one island to go to another island, which may be only maybe 75 miles away, you're really leaving one country and going to another country. And even geographically, they're different because uh, you may go to one island that is is uh, is a coral island, and the next island may be a a volcanic island. And uh, this particular island that we're on is is a coral and volcanic, and the soil is very thin on it. And the but the trees and everything are very lush here, and the the only crop really that's grown here on the island is sugarcane. This is one of the big sugar-producing islands in the world, and they produce sugarcane. In fact, there's a, there's a gigantic uh, sugar warehouse uh, just this side of Bridgetown, which is the big town on the island, and it's a, it's a hangar that's, that stands there like a giant inverted V. It's a tremendous building, and uh, this baby stands up there right on the water, and she looks like, oh, I would say maybe 15 stories high, which is a tremendous building for this part of the world. And it's a long thing. It looks like a dirigible hangar. And they put sugar in that building. That, that, uh, it, it is filled right to the brim with uh, sugar at the peak season. And that winds up to be something like 82,000 tons of sugar this building holds. And uh, I went to the sugar... Uh, this building, I, I just drove in. I was curious to see what it looked like, and there was the, there were there was the sugar in there, and great mounds. What it looked like was a building filled with sand. Uh, this was sugar that was uh, only about three quarters refined, and and was the brown sort of brownish sugar that uh, you find is very chic in certain New York restaurants. Although down here, the brown sugar, of course, the brownish granulated sugar is much cheaper. It's, uh, it's, it's considered a cheaper uh, grade of sugar, primarily because it isn't as, uh, as refined than the white sugar. But uh, sugar cane is the big thing down here. And just last year, uh, somebody was experimenting a little bit, and they brought in a, a, an automatic sugar cane cutter. Well, of course, a lot of the population down here earns its living by sugarcane cutting, harvesting the sugarcane, and they have unions, one thing or another, and they, there was a lot of complaints, and then they were, they were kind of happy because they discovered that the sugarcane harvester didn't work because the ground here is too hilly, and the, uh, the thing had been uh, developed to work on flat ground, and so they were saved.
But uh, sugarcane is the big crop. Uh, there's also a lot of rum made down here, Barbados rum, which is excellent rum. And when you, you go to the markets here, one of the rarest of all things in the markets here, and it's kind of surprising since you're down here in a tropical world that, uh, that is just tremendously lush, one of the rare things down here is vegetables. Uh, anytime you go someplace and they serve you fresh lettuce, uh, that is a really uh, uh, a real luxury down here. One of the one of the men here, John Nelson of Pan Am, who is a, uh, a, a really a real world traveler type, he he said to me the other day we we're having lunch and he said, you know, he said, whenever I get back to New York which isn't often enough. He said, when, when I do get back to New York, he said, one of the very first things I do is to go to a restaurant, and he says, I tell the, uh, the waiter, he said, you bring me a whole head of lettuce. You just bring me a whole head of lettuce. And he says, I want you to cut it into quarters, and you put it in a bowl and, and bring me some oil and vinegar and some salt and pepper, and just leave me alone for about 20 minutes. And he says, when that baby comes, he just cuts it in quarters. He puts that little pepper and that little salt on it and sprinkles. He says, you know, he says, there is no taste in the world like green vegetables when you don't get them very often. And that's something we take so much for granted, we don't even think about it. But down here, the uh, vegetables are really uh, a, a thing to be prized. Now, why is this? Well, that's a, that's a, strange, uh, that's a strange story. Uh, the reason that that not many vegetables are grown down here is because almost every available inch of the of the tillable land on Barbados is in sugar cane. And it's a regular year-round money crop, and when one crop is harvested, another crop is planted. And when two or three crops have been harvested, then the land is left to uh, rest a bit, and then they start all over again. And uh, very few farmers in this area seem to want to take the time to uh, grow a risk crop, which could be destroyed by insects or uh, a hurricane or bad weather, one thing and another, and take a lot of work to tend. So they just don't grow vegetables down here. And as a result, every time you sit down to a meal, uh, you're always a little thrown by the fact that you're eating canned peas or you're eating canned corn. And uh, you even get canned orange juice down there, even in spite of the fact that uh, this part of the world grows a, a large percentage of the, of the citrus fruit around. You get canned oranges, and you get canned orange and grapefruit juice. And another thing, too, that uh, is a little bit surprising down here is that, is that it's almost impossible also to get regular melons. Uh, I happen to uh, be a real uh, cantaloupe nut, and, uh, and uh, if you're a cantaloupe cuckoo or any kind of a melon cuckoo, this is a bad part of the world because of the same problem. They, they just don't grow. At least I'm speaking of Barbados here. Uh, I'm not talking about the islands in general. I'm talking about Barbados, that the, that the, that the melon is a rare dish. So uh, food down here is, is, uh, is interesting. It's, it's very different from what you'd expect it to be. And uh, another thing, speaking of food... Uh, Every place you go down here, you see, uh, you see, you don't see uh, herds of cows the way you see up in in the northern part of the country. You may see an occasional cow, an occasional horse, 
But uh, you do see a lot of uh, little tiny donkeys. Uh, that has nothing to do with the food supply. They're not eaten down here. They're, they're used down here for transport. But you see a lot of little donkeys, little tiny donkeys, and they'll be pulling a two-wheel cart. And in the back of the two-wheel cart is some guy going to town or, or uh, taking a look. In fact, I saw a, an odd one today. I saw a, a two-wheel cart, and it was being towed by a donkey. And in the two-wheel cart was a cow. And uh, they were walking along the street. The guy was leading it. And following behind the cow in the cart were two goats. And they were trotting along. And behind the two goats were three kids. And behind the kids came this very old lady with a gigantic load of wash on the top of her head. And it was the entire family, apparently, going somewhere. But uh, that uh, that's about the animal life on the island. And well, speaking of animal life... Uh, this is probably one of the great all-time bird sanctuaries of the world. There are more birds on this island than you'll find in the Bronx Zoo on any day of the week. The, the bird population is incredible. Uh, everywhere you go, you, uh, you hear birds, you see birds, and uh, they are, uh, the colors of them are wild. I, I, was, uh, I was in a garden yesterday, and they had a little... Uh, bird bath sitting up in the middle of the garden it was a warm day and it, it just 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 so beautiful it was it was almost almost made you weep to look at it this place at a place called a colony club right on the ocean and uh, great rolling lawns with these magnificent uh, trees uh, banyan trees and frangipani trees and uh, flamboyant trees uh, great blossoms hanging down and uh, up in the trees, it seemed like the whole, all the foliage above me was alive with birds. And the bird bath, I noticed the bird bath sitting there, and as soon as the shade hit the bird bath, a, a crowd of birds descended on this bird bath for the water. And I walked right up to them, and, and it was a collection of birds, I'll tell you, that was out of this world. Uh, yellow, green, blue, purple, short tails, long tails, yellow beaks, green beaks, and this great uh, horde of tropical birds climbing up one on top of the other, pecking away at the water, was a sight that, uh, well, you know, it's tropical. It's, uh, that's it. It's pure tropical. But uh, the, 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 the tropics uh, will always be to me uh, the, the, the image of pirates and, and uh, the idea. Of course, you hear so much about pirates. So much corny stuff is done on the world of pirates down here. That, uh, that once in a while it would be great if somebody really did some serious work on just what pirates were. And, uh, you know, pirates really didn't look much like Errol Flynn, for any of you that uh, have any doubts about it. And they didn't act much like Harold, uh, Errol Flynn or, uh, or Douglas Fairbanks. These, the uh, pirate was a very different breed of cat, and, and a lot of the pirates down here, apparently in this area, had a tremendous urge later in life to become very... Uh, respectable citizens. One of the, one of the uh, big pirates that operated out of Barbados was a guy that put lights out on the reefs around here. And uh, once in a while, a ship would be lured to the shore by these lights and thinking that uh, he was further out than he was, he would tear the bottom out of his boat and then they would, they would loot the boat. But uh, the, the pirate world, I think, has hardly been touched. Uh, yesterday afternoon, I went... I went uh, skin diving, uh, aqualung diving on, a, on one of the reefs 
just off uh, Barbados here. And, of course, the, the ground, the, the, the uh, bottom of the sea here is pure white, uh, completely uh, sugar-like sand. Uh, the sand is so white that it's almost blinding to look at, and this, this tremendous coral reef that uh, was in water of about 30 or 40 feet deep was uh, just lying down there in that dark uh, blue-green uh, sea. And if you've never done any aqualung diving, uh, this, uh, this, this, is, uh, this is a sport that has to be... There's no way to, there's no way to talk about it. In fact, uh, the movies and the, uh, the things you see done on diving just don't quite uh, say what it's like to actually dive, particularly when diving on a coral reef down here in the Leeward Islands, which is one of the great coral areas of the entire world. And this coral lies on the bottom, and, and uh, you've probably seen movies of it, but the movies never can do justice to the reality of this thing. And uh, I was floating along, uh, swimming along about uh, 25, 30 feet below the surface, right over the reef, and uh, two or three long, thin, silvery barracuda drifted by. Down in this area, the, uh, there, there aren't too many sharks in this area. This is not a big shark part of the world, but uh, that is around Bar uh, this island. Now, again, I must say that anything I say relates to this particular island, that this changes from island to island. And I'm talking, in this case, of Barbados, as it's pronounced down here, Barbados. But the, the, uh, this, this, these beautiful barracuda, which is a fish that's very uh, common down here, these two long, silvery-blue torpedoes just drifted by with their great big dish eyes. And they, they looked at me for a minute, and then with a flick of the tail, they went drifting on past and down the reef and, and uh, disappeared over the white sand. Now, the, uh, the barracuda is, uh, is an infamous fish, but uh, they'll tell you down here that, that uh, they, they won't give you much trouble unless you give them trouble. And I'm not about to tangle with barracudas. I've had plenty of trouble with human barracudas all my life, not to deal with the real one. But those, those beautiful teeth flash when they go drifting by. <laughs> and uh, speaking of fishing, I wish I had more time to, uh, to go on about this, but all... Yesterday afternoon, I spent on a little diesel-driven cabin cruiser, a, a, a real tough little fishing ship, uh, not uh, a deep-sea fishing ship. I went out deep-sea fishing on this little boat called the Albacore, owned by one of the guys here, and uh, operated for us this afternoon by a Bwe captain who knew every inch of the reef. And... Uh, worked in nothing but a pair of khaki shorts, and we drifted back and forth over the reef. And I, I'd love to tell you that I, that I landed a 700-pound marlin, but um, the shepherd luck held good, and so for four hours I drifted back and forth over some of the greatest fishing grounds in the world and didn't even get so much as a nibble. Nothing happened. A few Rain showers went over us, but it was a beautiful afternoon. The sun hung up there, and you could see the island lying off to our left as we went back and forth over the reef. And uh, that, that afternoon on that boat, uh, deep sea fishing was uh, one of those great moments. You know, there's, there's, there's moments in your life that, that even while you're living them, you say to yourself, now look, Dad, remember this. Uh, 
just just remember this because this is going to be one of those things that years from now you're gonna you're gonna want to remember, and it's one of the great moments of your life. Now now pay attention, don't fall asleep. <laughs> and uh, there I was, uh, uh, sitting in the in the cockpit of this boat, drifting back and forth. And they uh, they have marlin, and by the way, they have tuna in this area. We were actually fishing for either dolphin, wahoo, or marlin with possibly sailfish. There were a lot of sailfish in the area, but nothing was striking. It was just one of those days. And uh, we tried spoons, and we tr- and, and and you know what they use for bait down here? Uh, for any of you guys that are fishermen, the the bait, of course, is the ubiquitous fish down here, and that's the the, the flying fish. Uh, this is such a beautiful fish to look at that you feel kind of rotten seeing him put on a hook for bait particularly if you're not going to catch anything, but that's, you know, that's life. And so we drifted back and forth and back and forth. I kept saying, oh, man, you're going to have to remember this. And I had clutched in my hand this uh, this uh, glass of, uh, of this light, uh, very mild Barbados rum, a little lemon peel in it, and uh, a couple of great big ice cubes. And, oh, boy, life was rich. Life was real. And then all of a sudden, over the horizon came this this incredible apparition of a boat. I mean, it, it was unbelievable. Uh, this boat came over the horizon, and it looked like every ridiculous, silly boat that you've ever seen pictures of in every ridiculous, silly fairy tale book you've ever seen in your life. Green and yellow and red and pink. It had, uh, it had all kinds of fancy wooden work on it. And uh, she went drifting on by with the sails, uh, flashing in the wind and i said to the captain i said what in the devil was that and he says oh uh, uh you 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 uh, know you know dr doolittle i said i know who dr what uh, dr doolittle you know dr doolittle i said dr doolittle what's he got to do with uh, you know what's the what's the scene he says uh, dr doolittle boat uh, that's uh dr doolittle's boat sir and then it hit me this was the boat that they used in the Dr. Doolittle movie, which I have been happily able to avoid. I, I make sure that I do not go to movies where animals talk. And, uh, <laughs> how's that for being a curmudgeon? This, this uh, beautiful ship, though, drifted off over the horizon. And, uh, I said to him, I said, well, how come the boat, I said, I don't like to be uh, opaque here or oblique or anything, but how come Dr. Doolittle's boat is down here? He said, I don't know. He said, I don't know. Dr. Doolittle boat here. <laughs> and we went sailing over this cloudless sea with the sun shining and the waves lapping at our heels. And nary a bite. Nary a bite. But such is the life of an intrepid mariner. <laughs>